You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. My name is Rowan Conway. I am Director of Development here at the RSA. I'm delighted to introduce this evening's event, which rounds off a day of activity. We've been very active today talking about social models of care and social movements in health. Um, We have been exploring how to create social movements in health which empower patients, carers and communities to take action for improved health and well-being. Now, it is very much in the public dialogue that health services are under sustained and growing pressure with increasing demand for care and squeezes on finances. The NHS five-year forward view calls for large-scale transformation and new models of care in what it says if we are to maintain a sustainable and universal health service. Now, this is much um, a very public debate and something that we want to get into this uh, this evening. We have been working as one of the national partners in partnership with NHS NHS England, um, with Nesta and the New Economics Foundation, exploring how social movements work across health and social care and seeing if they can build stronger and more connected communities. We're working closely with the new, model, um, new care model vanguards and the wider health and social care system in England to understand and identify and share learning from current good practice. And Halima will take us through some research that you will be able to access outside um, that, we have been, that we have published today. In tonight's event, we will consider the potential of social movements to organise and lead change. And our aim is to have a probing discussion about what it takes to build and sustain effective innovation in healthcare. We're delighted to announce the publication of Nesta's primary report that illustrates the power of people in movements. But I'm going to move straight on to the show. Um, So it's my great pleasure to welcome our expert panel. And they are going to come through and each do a short lightning talk to go through their views of health as a social movement. We're going to start with Halima Khan, who is executive director of the Health Lab at Nesta, which strives change to improve people's health and well-being. Halima has a strong track record of public service reform and innovation with a particular focus on social care, health and disability. Now she's going to be followed by Helen Bevan who has the extraordinary title of Chief Transformation Officer at NHS England in the Horizons team. Helen is acknowledged globally for her expertise of large-scale change um, and has been looking at how to use social movement principles in change both within and outside of the NHS and translating it into practical outcomes um, and practical action. Josta Block, who was our 2014 Albert Medal winner here at the RSA, is founder and CEO of Burtzog, although it's his life's work to make CEOs redundant. Um, He and his team created a new model of care, a new self-organising model of care that's nurse-led, where patients and professionals are empowered to find the best solutions to their healthcare needs. And then finally, we'll hear from Alan Higgins, who's Director of Public Health at um, uh, Oldham Council, and he's working with the Greater Manchester Devolution team around um, arts and cultural change and health and community development, and using arts as a core um, public health tool. So I'll hand over first to Halima, who will give an overview of social movements as part of a conceptual framework for health. We'll then hear opening presentations from our distinguished panellists before moving on to a wider discussion with yourselves. Please join me in welcoming Halima Khan. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Rowan, and it's, uh, it's great to be here. Um, and Health Lab at Nesta is all about building a people-powered health system that is for people, by people, and with people, which is why we're absolutely delighted to be part of this programme, working alongside NHS England, the RSA, and NEF. And I'm really, um, really excited about being part of this fantastic panel. I think... Um, I think Helen, you really are the, uh, the queen uh, of social movements in health. So we are, we are honoured to be uh, in your presence and building on all of the work that you've done. You're sitting amazing stuff um, in the Netherlands. And uh, um, Alan, you're creating a revolution in Oldham. So uh, we are in great company. Um, so I'm here to tell you a bit about this report that we have launched today. Um, and firstly, I'd like to thank all of my co-authors who are here and also all of you in the room. Many of you have helped us Uh, to create this report. So thank you for your engagement. Um, And we think it is uh, perhaps quite a timely report. Um, There does seem to be uh, a sort of a surge of interest in uh, social movements in a health context. There's also a huge amount of practice already out there, practice that we can engage with and learn from. Um, And so this is really all about reflecting about large-scale social change, change that is accelerated through people, not methods, not 
processes. They may use methods and processes, but it's the people that are powering the change. Um, and it's all about people standing up, speaking out and seeking change about the things that are most important to them, their loved ones, their neighbours, their communities. So that, that is what we're all um, here to, to reflect on and to, and to learn more about. And a, a couple of sort of key insights, if you like, before I take you through some of the key conclusions from the report. The first is the very important fact that social movements are not new. Um, that dramatic social change has been time and again driven by groups of concerned citizens coming together and creating change that matters. So that's the first very important point that I think we should, we should bear in mind. The second point is that I think we should also recognise that social movements can look quite different to one another. So a couple of quick examples. If you think of the tobacco control movement, which was um, initiated, if you like, off the back of research that connected uh, tobacco use and lung cancer, that looks and feels quite different to another social movement, say, take the disability rights movement, a movement that is really all about rights, identity, and a new understanding of, of living with a variety of different conditions and so forth. So those two, those two movements look quite different. Our challenge is what are the, 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 the defining and the common characteristics that link them? And I think also from those two examples, it's quite clear just how, um, the, the, what great scale social movements can operate at, um, and over quite long time periods, decades of work, and also how sophisticated their impacts can be, how multifaceted they are. So that's the second. And then the third point, really, is how social movements in their purest form are messy, they are vibrant, they are spontaneous, they bubble up from outside of formal institutions, formal power structures. And so, by definition, social movements are there really partly to make uh, the, the ways in which we normally do things, established ways of working, feel uncomfortable. And so it's really quite extraordinary, when you think of it, to have now leaders from our biggest public institution, uh, one of the biggest, the NHS, calling for more social movements. That is really quite an extraordinary thing, given what we know about social movements. But at the same time, I think it's possible to say, well, actually, that's really quite understandable. So if we think in terms of the fact that we're now, I think, there's a consensus around the limits of a treat and cure model of health, that actually it's quite understandable now that more and more people, even within formal structures, are looking for more socially driven methods of change. So if you like, that's a very kind of quick overview of really the backdrop, I think, to the research that we've done. But I think the best way into it is really to hear the voices of the people that we've been engaging with. Um, and so this first one is really making just that very important point again. We must build and recognise and indeed honour the social movements that have preceded us and not talk as if social movements is a bright, new, shiny thing. This is a very interesting uh, insight, and again, we heard it again and again through our work. So isn't this just community development? And it's quite a kind of a subtle point, really. So community development and social movements in health share many, many characteristics. Indeed, it might be possible to think of community development in some way as being a form of social movements. But I think social movements do go beyond community development. So there are social movements, if you like, that may share some of the characteristics, but not all. And actually, the, the kind of the citizen science model might well be a, quite an interesting comparison, if you like, that has shared some characteristics but not all. And the other sort of important point on this is that I think social movements very much need to transcend above any one single place or institution. It is their persistence and the, their scale over time which really gives them their, kind of their, their great sort of characteristics. This next sort of uh, point that we heard through our work, which is about um, the relationship between, you know, the moment at which a social movement comes up and bumps up against formal institutions is absolutely key, particularly in the context where the NHS is calling for more social movements. So this becomes a great, uh, I think, a great sort of um, issue that requires more work, and we're very interested in, in thinking through kind of dynamic ways in which um, the interaction between institutions and social movements can evolve. And then I think this, in some ways, might be my favourite insight, which... Um, 
is, I don't know about you, but sometimes, particularly in the context of doing this research, I'm talking to lots of people doing brilliant, brilliant work, and they say, oh, that's a real coincidence you're doing work on social movements, because I launched one last week. Um, and it's really subtle, because obviously the great power of social movement is its inclusivity, it's the energy, it's the passion, that's exactly what we want to, uh, to sort of, to, to sort of to, to develop and to grow. At the same time, if we end up using the, the term social movements to refer to literally almost anything that is vaguely social and involves more than one person, it is going to lose some meaning. And so that's the balance that I think we need to, that we need to strike. So we've had a go at a definition that we hope is useful. I think a couple of things to, to pull out in terms of what's behind this definition. One is really reminding us all the time that social movements are driven by people, not by organisations. Organisations may well be part of social movements, but they can't drive them. This needs to be a people-led um, endeavour. I think the other sort of point um, behind this uh, definition is to, to realise really all the multifaceted uh, different sort of examples of social movements. So in terms of the, the personal, sort of affecting people's personal experience of their health, there are great examples around reducing cultural stigmas to do with particular con health conditions or promoting research for the treatment of particular health conditions. But equally, social movements can grapple with the very systems that uh, people experience with, res with respect to their health. So there are ways in which, um, if you like, the hospice movement is a brilliant example where we're actually creating a whole new model of delivering care that didn't previously exist. So many, many different ways in which social movements can be manifested. So what we've done is try to bring out some of the key characteristics, if you like, of social movements. And our reflection really is that it might be more fruitful to focus on how social movements behave rather than what a social movement is. And if you like, part of the reason why we think this might be particularly fruitful is it is actually within, with, aligned with this very spirit, if you like, of social movements. So not trying to sort of pin them down into a box, but more engaging with how, it, how is it that they affect change. And so here, I won't take you through these, but here are some very hopefully helpful ways in which, through our engagement with the literature and with practice, that you see how social movements can behave differently. Um, and my favourite is the raging and the roaring one near the bottom. And I think that is, that is key. That is key. We mustn't lose that. I won't spend too long on, on, on these issues because I think we should, we should move on to the rest of the panel. But this is just a quick um, sketch, if you like, on different, a, par, a possible path towards institutionalisation for social movements. And I think this is a field that we should engage in more collectively. So this is one sketch of how a social movement might change over time and become more formalised, um, might even create organisations from it. Our hunches, and I'm, you, I'm sure you'll share this, there are many, many possible paths which social movements could take over time. And then our conclusion, really, is that, having done the report and engaged with this, that there, despite the fact that there is a great deal of great practice out there, that people have been thinking and researching this for a great deal of time, it still doesn't quite feel that we have quite designed and created the models of engagement and deliberation and decision-making that are really required for a very much more productive engagement between social movements and institutions. Because I think the real prize here is, is there a model of engagement that values and strengthens the differences between social movements and institutions rather than trying to turn one into the other or vice versa. So I think that is our, I think that is our collective challenge. I'd be interested in your response to it um, and look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Helen, over to you. As somebody who has been a um, change activist and a, and a change leader inside the National Health Service and the wider health and care system for a long time, actually, this is my 26th year, I'm, uh, I'm really thrilled to be here today and really um, thrilled to see the, um, the primary report on health as a, as a social movement. And I think that, you know, I would agree with Halima that we've reached a particular um, place in time. And, you know, as somebody who has spent many years kind of working um, with these principles, um, you know, seeking to, to, to build practice, um, it kind of warms my heart to, um, to see this happening. 
So I got asked to define you know, my view of a social movement, so I stole one. I stole one from the Global Fund for Women. And again, I think it's interesting to look at this in the context of our health and the healthcare um, uh, challenges. You know, a movement is a group of people with a shared purpose who create change together. Okay? We need plenty of that in the health and care system. You know, um, and what we've got here is a, is a set of um, you know criteria that, that make up a movement. And the one I particularly want to focus on tonight is the first one, which is about a strong pipeline of leaders. And the, the theme of my um, eight minutes of glory um, uh, this evening is, you know, very often I think that, that one of the, um, the shortcomings of the approaches that we use to, to social movements is we think that social movements are about mobilising, you know, mobilising people for change. And that's really important. But actually what is more important is our ability to build leaders. So um, more of that. So, you know, very often um, it's, it's difficult trying to be um, a movement leader in a, in a, in a health and, um, and, and healthcare world. And you know what I'd say is actually there's room for, you know, there's room for it all. Of course we need randomised controlled trials. Of course we need good science. And I think more than ever we need the kind of, um, you know, um, uh, rallying around the things that really matter um, to make a difference. And I absolutely agree with Halima, you know, that we're not starting here at point zero. We're building on, you know, years and years of, of, of change and improvement um, in the health and care system using social movement principles. And, you know, lots of examples, but just some of the ones um, that, that I've been involved in that I feel very passionate about. And down here on the right-hand side, um, the right prescription, um, this was um, an amazing call to action that was led by the Dementia Action Alliance, which meant that in less than three years... Um, there was a 51% reduction in prescribing of antipsychotics to people with um, dementia okay, as a result of this, um, of this call to action using social movement principles. If we'd have done that the way that we normally do it, which is to write a guideline for clinicians and try and impose it through regulations, we'd have no way we'd have got that. Um, another one is NHS Change Day. This is an amazing uh, movement of um, frontline staff, um, patient leaders, um, people all over the system who on one particular day of the year take a specific action um, to make a difference to the experience and outcomes of care. And we've seen tens, hundreds of thousands of people um, engaging in Change Day. And the next um, Change Day is on the 19th of October. And another one here, the School for Health and Care Radicals. And this is a school for activists using um, social movement principles. And uh, so far, uh, more than 10,000 people from 44 countries have, um, have been, been part of that. So, I mean, I agree with Alima. I, I think that, you know, now is the, is the time, okay, that, you know, we need to be thinking about, about um, social movement approaches and, and principles and actions at scale. And the reason why is I think we've reached a point in our system where we have to disrupt. You know, of course we need small-scale incremental change. We always will. But it just isn't enough. When we see the gaps between where we are and where we need to be, you know, we, we so need to embrace disruption. I love this quote here from Gary Hamill because I think it sums it up. And he says, you know, our, our management systems um, of tomorrow will need to value diversity, dissent and divergence okay, as highly as conformance, consensus and cohesion. Of course we need conformance, conformance consensus and cohesion because we need safe, effective care um, uh, for our patients and our citizens. But it isn't enough. Hey, you know, um, if, if we don't build diversity and dissent and divergence, then our storyline is never going to change, and our storyline has to change. But I'll have a little, another little um, comment here, which comes from Peter van der Rewera, and he says, you know, if we're trying to be disruptive, social movement-orientated change agents, okay, what's the biggest mistake to avoid? And actually, he says, it's about creating disruption at work. You know, um, going into a system like an unguided Exocet missile, because actually what he says is that disruption is about, it's about developing relationships, it's about connecting, it's about building change at scale. So what I want um, uh, to just show you um, for the, the rest of my little slot is I want to just take you through one of the frameworks which actually appears in the Health as a Social Movement and Primer because it makes such an important point, I think, when we think about um, uh, uh, Health as a Social Movement. And this comes from a researcher called um, Harry Han in the USA. And what she did, she did a, a fantastic piece of research about, about activists, okay, and who makes the most effective activists. And she talked about three different kinds of um, activists that she found in her studies. 
And the first kind of activist um, she called lone wolves. And lone wolves are people who, um, they, they build power because they've got information. Um, and they, um, they are part of the system, so they work through advocacy, they work on oversight committees, um, they make public comments, and they take part in um, consultations. Do you know what I'd say? If you look around um, the NHS and the wider health and care system, actually a really significant proportion of the way that we work with patient leaders and patient representatives is as lone wolves. Um, Here's a a comment from Annette McKinnon, and she says, you know, what I'm ranting about is the way in which patients are being streamed into advisory subcommittees, the way we're being used as tokens and to help tick off the right box. Where is the attitude that patients are part of the team in healthcare, that we are partners? Why are we always being asked to participate inside a predetermined frame? When, when will we see co-design of new policies and ultimately co-production? That's classic, okay, lone wolf approach to, um, to um, activism, okay? The second group, she called mobilisers, okay? And they build power through people, okay? Um, And what they're able to do, mobilisers, is to call on very large numbers of people. So if you want to call a load of people to action on a a particular day or on a particular cause, mobilisers can call them to action, okay? Really important um, uh, skill and um, and capability. The third group um, she calls organisers. And what organisers do, in addition to what mobilisers do, is they build leaders, they grow leaders, they identify the people um, who who can make a difference, they train them in a distributed network, they build community and they protect the strength of its community. So looking at the three, which do you think is the least likely kind, of all those three kinds of activists, which is the least likely to be able to make big change happen? Which one do you reckon? Okay, lone wolves, okay? Where's most of our focus at the moment? Lone wolves. And um, why I presented this is because very often when we talk about social movement um, thinking and practice in health and care, we're talking about mobilisers. We think it's about getting loads of people engaged in change. And, and yes, that's important, but it isn't enough. Okay? What Harry Han found and, and, um, and what I find is that, of course, we want people that are mobilisers, but the, the activists that, um, that achieve the most, okay, that have the most success, are a combination of mobilising and organising. So we really need to focus on building leaders. And um, I take this quote here from Joe Simpson. He says, the great social movements get their energy by growing a distributed leadership. So I think actually one of the most important things that we need to be doing um, as, we, as we move forward, you know, taking social movement thinking and practice to a different level is to grow a distributed leadership. And, um, and finally, you know, where do I think we need to be going? Actually, I, I, the kind of term I'd use to sum it up is um, we need disruption, but we need disruptive co-creation. You see, we're fixated at the moment, I think, in our system, in top-down and bottom-up change. And of course we need top-down and bottom-up change, you know, we do. Um, But, you know, if you look at history, what it tells us is that breakthrough innovation rarely comes from inside the existing system. You know, it's these people coming in and these perspectives coming in from the outside. And in addition, it's the the new generation of leaders, you know, the trainees, the students, um, the young leaders have got a huge role to play. And what we're talking about here is moving beyond the kind of service lens, the perspectives that most system leaders um, conceive the problems. And it's about bringing positive disruption into the system for faster change and bigger outcomes. And I think that's, you know, it's what we need. And I think it's one of the biggest opportunities that um, social movement thinking and practice gives us um, in terms of health and care. And I say bring it on. Well, um, I'm uh, Jos de Blok. I'm a community health nurse, um, and I worked for 15 years as a nurse. And I'm also an anarchist and an activist. So I was born as an anarchist, I think. Um, always causing problem at school, so I always had work to do. Um, and becoming a nurse was, for me, the most uh, beautiful profession. Before that, I studied economics. But I quit my study after two years. And becoming a nurse was, for me, the most beautiful thing. I I became a community health nurse. And every day was an adventure because I could do what I think was was necessary for the community. So in that days, we didn't have a real organization around us. We just were professionals and working in a professional way with the community in the community. 
And then after um, some years, the whole uh, way of organizing of healthcare changed in Holland. Um, between 1993 and 2006, I resigned my job. I became director, and I saw what organizations did with people, so what power and uh, hierarchy did with people, and it became more and more difficult for professionals just to do what they think was, was necessary. So in 2006, I resigned, and with some, with some friends, uh, we built um, a, a concept. It's called uh, Buurtzorg, and our idea was... Very simple, let's um, build an organizational model which facilitates professionals to do what I think what's necessary to do. So I also had the experience, I had these two years of economics study, and I had this experience as a, as a, as a director, so I knew how the system worked. So my, one of my goals was, how, what can we do to cheat the system? So, because the system, uh, the healthcare system, was creating more and more problems, in my opinion. So, so what we did, and it took us uh, one and a half year together with some friends, and we had a lot of beers and nuts uh, and evenings. Um, but we we discussed what what can we do to build a scalable model, uh, which can grow very fast and uh, create a disruption in healthcare. So that was our goal in 2006. In Holland, a lot of people think that it's an accident, that there was just four nurses starting, and that after some years it was a lucky shot, and, but it was not true. So I, I agree with these principles that um, for mobilizing people and not um, um, disappointing people, you need to have a model which is sustainable. So what we did was uh, how can we um, work within the financial system that is... Um, um, creating a, some kind of like an inner world where everybody who works in this world can do what I think is useful. So our model is based on uh, very simple uh, things like um, a neighborhood. A neighborhood is an, is an environment where everybody um, have, uh, can build a network. So the nurses uh, who are working in the neighborhood have their informal networks and they can use them to bring solutions. We said if, an, if a team is around 10 nurses, then they can organize everything themselves. They don't need management. Um, I think nobody needs management. But, um, and they, they will just uh, do everything they think it's useful to do, the, to do the right things, to help people in a, in a, in a professional way. Um, so that, that was one of the principles. And we also made um, a, a very simple business model. So we said if the income of every team is this, then they can survive every year. And if we have a little bit uh, surplus, then we are sustainable and then we are independent uh, from the system. So that was the, the starting point in 2006. And at the moment, we are with 10,000 nurses and we have 4,000 uh, care workers. Uh, and we are still working the same. So we have a very simple model, but every nurse, in my opinion, is a leader. So they mobilize now other people in the community. And... If you look at, we have uh, dealt with 600,000 patients uh, in, in these 10 years. And also the patients became a member of the network. And they have families. And all these families became also participants. And you see that also the families, when we have parties, because we have a lot of parties, and the, uh, all the teams celebrate every year they exist. And what you see uh, when they celebrate is that the children and the, the partners of these nurses are also there. So the children are bringing the, the, the drinks and the food, and the partners are standing very proud that their wives resigned their jobs and started this uh, from their own. So it's, it started as, as, uh, as, as a movement. Um, I am formally, I'm the CEO, but I'm not needed anymore. So I'm traveling all over the world to just to tell the story and enjoy uh, you and so on. Um, and and what, what happens is that it's growing naturally. So it's, it's a very organic way of, of doing things. And the idea that everything it's log everybody thinks it's logic, so clients think it's logic, uh, the nurses think it's logic, and now even uh, all the system players think it's logic. And it's, they also decided, the politicians, they decided that it's wise to make it the national standard. And that was... Um, and one of the, the, the things was how, how do we navigate in the system 
We never accepted anything we thought it was useless to do. So if the system said uh, you need to use indicators for ulcers, that's, I think the NHS is fond of, of, very fond of ulcers, um, then we said it's useless to focus on, on these kind of things. So ask just the nurses what kind of problems they, uh, they meet and build your quality system on that. So every time again we started the discussion if it was with the health insurance or it was with the ministry or it was with the care authority. We never accepted it just as it is. And what I see is a lot of organizations and a lot of managers just accept all these regulations as they are normal. But we create a lot of abnormal regulations which are just bothering the people to do their work. So we say to our nurses, don't accept uh, to do useless things. So just start to discuss the things and try to find alternatives. So that was the other thing what we did. We gave all the uh, authorities alternatives. So we said, it's useless to do this, but you can do that. Because only fighting and only uh, arguing is not enough, I think. So all the time we, uh, and we had a very open attitude and we will see what happens. So we said uh, when there was a problem, we started to discuss how can we solve the problem. So a very open mind to everything which can happen. And um, what we saw that all the authorities um, started to talk together about what, what was happening. So even people I didn't know about, they were discussing what we were doing and said perhaps that's the right thing to do. So this was um, one way, uh, with, this was about community nursing. But for the, for the long term, uh, I see that it can be done with a lot of different professions. So social workers, doctors, uh, we are now working with, with uh, mental care, uh, we have a part of youth care, and it's all based on the same principles. So like the, there's a beautiful experiment in a village that the youth care workers are um, they feel themselves as part of the community. They don't feel that they are part of the organization. And I think that's, for me, that's an, uh, a, a beautiful example of how it should be. So the moment that people feel that the community is the owner of their activities and they're integrated in the community, a lot of a complete other dynamic exists than when people feel that they have to follow all kinds of regulations and all kinds of rules from the organization they're working for. So this is um, an example, and um, I'm very happy to be here again because it felt very good to get this. Uh, one thing I, I had to say, there was this journalist who wrote an article uh, a few weeks ago, and he called me an anarchist, um, and he said he, he watched the uh, RSA video uh, from the, the medal, and he said that my English was so terrible. <laughs> he wrote it in the newspaper. He says, he talks like my uncle on the bar, and his, eng his English is terrible. And then the rest of the article is quite positive. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much for the invitation. And what I'm going to talk about is some work that we're doing in Greater Manchester around... Uh, the strapline is Live Well, Make Art. That's, that's what it's become known as. That's its Twitter handle as well. And um, I'm going to tell you about what we've done, because um, that's useful for me, because every time I have to explain it to somebody, I learn a bit more about what we're doing, and I understand it a bit more as well. Um, I would also, at this point, declare my, my lack of credentials in terms of working on social movements. Two years ago, I'm not sure what I knew of the term. It's only in that short time that I've um, read about it, read a lot of Helen's stuff, read some other stuff as well, and starting putting out a lot of it, I hope, into practice. But uh, what the, the main thing that the work we've got in the arts, health and social movement has got that's in common with some of the, the principles or the, the things that other social movements have is that messiness, complexity, uh, uncertainty about where it's going. We've got all of that in abundance, but we've also got an awful lot of enthusiasm. And every time I go into a meeting where I'm thinking, oh, good grief, what are we doing here? It's, I come away from it, having had that, that feeling turned around by the, the energy of the people in the room. So... Um, so it was about two years ago, and at around that time, um, there was a report being worked on, um, which eventually was called Due North, which was a, a, a look at health and health inequalities across the north of England. And um, 
Ben Barr and, and colleagues from Liverpool uh, were, were doing some research, looking at the evidence behind engaging communities and why that, that was good for health. And there was a couple of, I went back to that report, that's what I was reading at the time, and he was, he was quoting Amartya Sen, saying, the fundamental cause of inequalities in health is a relative lack of control and powerlessness of disadvantaged groups. Okay. Um, Marmot around, well, earlier, creating, what we need to do is create the conditions for people to take control over their lives. And then also in the same report, about the process of getting involved together with others builds social capital that leads to health benefits. And it was that kind of logical thinking that was behind um, what came to be the, the start of the social movements work uh, in Greater Manchester, that sense of wanting to find a way of providing the conditions for people to take more control over their lives. And there, there's many ways of doing that. But the particular one that we're going to talk about is social movements. So that, that was knocking around that time, two years ago, roughly. Um, then on to Greater Manchester devolution. And the, the deal was, was signed off in November 2014, uh, saying that we would have power and, and responsibility control handed over to the authorities in Greater Manchester to run health and social care by April 2016. And, and there was a bit of thinking, oh, good grief, what have we got? It's, it's kind of getting what you wished for in a way. But that, that was signed off in November 2014. And in the discussions around that time, social movement was mentioned in relation to health. And there was a meeting in Manchester Town Hall, and I remember standing up and saying, you know, it sounds fantastic. However, I just don't know if when I talk about social movement for health, it's what you're talking about and what you're hearing. And... Um, it was from that I offered to, to do a bit of work just to try to understand what it is that we might be talking about, hence the, 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 the reading up. The, the next signed document, the Memorandum of Understanding in the, the GM devolution uh, uh, story, was by July 2015. That was with Public Health England. And um, looking at promotion of health and well-being, but prevention of ill health. And we, 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 by this time, we were looking at concentrating the work into a number of programmes. And we concluded that we wanted to have one which was about a social movement for health. But reading on it, it became clear that you couldn't really commission a social movement. You can't control it. That, that's starting from the wrong place. So we settled on wanting to nurture a social movement for health. And that's one of the five programmes in the Greater Manchester Commissioning Strategy on Public Health, is that we would look to nurture. That felt like it gave us a bit of leeway. So we started putting together various proposals on this, but in fact they, they were getting stuck. We needed some different ways of thinking. And it was through my previous association with community arts over, I don't know, 20, 25 years, um, that I thought that whilst I think I'm an enlightened public health practitioner, the people I speak to are mostly people like me who present statistics and, you know, all that stuff, and I really needed to engage with people who think differently. So I tapped into that community arts network I got in contact with people in Greater Manchester I hadn't seen for some time, talked to them about whether we could look at a social movement for health, or as it became um, known as a social movement for active citizenship, that sense of not just wanting to talk to people about health necessarily, about what they could actually do for themselves or with others do for their, their communities. And thankfully, the, the people I spoke to, uh, one was is the chief exec of a major cultural organisation in, in Manchester, another was an academic with a long history in arts and health, Another is a community arts practitioner with 25, 30 years' experience in the field. And they all were enthused with the idea. They all brought different aspects to the thinking on it. Um, we then thought that we need to reach out to more people. And, of course, the way that you do this when you're in this line of working is to have a workshop. And, uh, and we did that in, in the middle of Manchester. And the, really, the idea behind it, the, the workshop, and this was November last year, um, was to ask people, what excites you about these ideas? If it went well, what would it look like? And we weren't sure how many people would turn up. Um, in the end, about 30, 35 people came to the first meeting. We lined up various people to say things at the right moments. Um, and we thought, if maybe a quarter of the people who come want to stay engaged, then that would be great. That would be you know, a success. As it happens, all 35 people wanted to stay engaged, wanted to see where it would go next. And just that sense of you know, that's what happens when you bring people together. And the people who had come together were a mixture of um, people from the health and social care field, from my background, local government as well. Um, we tapped into lots of um, 
voluntary sector arts organizations, arts practitioners as well, academics too, arts administrators as well. And it was that mixture that seemed to really spark something off in the day which led to that very enthusiastic response. Um, so 36 people filled with enthusiasm and wanted to stay engaged with it. Uh, the core group who put it together then met afterwards and think, crikey, what have, you know, what have we done? What's happened here? And, and what, how could we actually build on this? The, the intention was to have another workshop by February. That would have been February of this year. Of course, it, it took longer. It was May by the time we actually got back together again. But this time we were wanting to look at getting some more substance into this work. So looking at values and principles of what we're doing. We had discussions during that workshop as to how we could construct this. Ideas come forward. We've since written something out and sent it out towards the end of August for others to come back to us and comment on it. That's happening as we speak. Uh, we got about 45 people to this meeting. About half of those were people who had been at the previous meeting. So there was some sense of a growing uh, interest as well. A key thing that we wanted to do was to look at whether we could start any actual practice from this workshop. And so we asked for volunteers to put their heads together around themes that we fed, but also that they could come up with to see if anyone would do some work between that workshop and yet another workshop. We didn't want to have another workshop. We were just discussing uh, what we might do. And um, I don't know whether it was, it was just a mix of people on the day, but there was just no problem in getting people coming forward. Um, three things were spin-offs from that. Um, uh, they're also part of the... Um, Health as a social movement pilot in, in Greater Manchester, working through uh, the Stockport Vanguard. And um, there's one called Creating 100 Moments. It's underway at this moment. It has its own website, if you'd like to, to tap into that. And, and that's um, followed up by another one, which is about community conversations, only just getting off the ground. And that's about talking to people about arts and health. Do they get engaged in arts activity? Would they like to do that? How would that relate to the rest of their lives? Um, the third Tree of life idea might not get off the ground. That's where these things go, I think. But it might get there. The, the aspect of arts in this, as opposed to community development work around health, which I've been involved in and you know, highly value over the years, it, the arts have seemed to bring something additional, which was about inspiring hope. That sense of creating community seemed to be happening more readily through this, these spin-off bits of work. And there's also some sense about drawing people into action, which seemed to be more um, available to us through this. So it, it's still happening. There's no conclusions yet. Uh, some things are spinning off from it. Yesterday, I was in a meeting. We are invited to go and talk to the Greater Manchester Museums Group, not something I would have thought of doing as a director of public health. But again, a couple of the people in that group had been to one of the workshops had been inspired by what we were discussing there and by the level of energy in the room and wanted to talk about what the museums could actually do. It got into a conversation about public space and that kind of sense of public realm. I'm not sure where that will go, but I'm interested in it and I want to keep working on it. So we're not the social movement. Um, I'm not always confident about saying that because some people in the group do say, well, are we the social movement? I'm not sure. And they're mostly practitioners that say that. And I'm not going to deny them if they, that's the way they want to go. But it feels to me that what we're doing with this arts and health social movement, Live Well, Make Art, is about that sense of creating the conditions through which social movements may well emerge. I hope it's early days. It's been going for about a year. I hope it has many more years to come. Um, but it is something which feels that we will get a lot of learning from doing it, no matter where we actually end up. And that sense of engaging with people is one that feels it has something to offer, which is in addition to what we might have going through some of the usual, the more familiar community development approaches. It feels that social movement actually offers some stretch to us there. And that's what we're looking for through the arts, health and social movement in Greater Manchester. Thank you. OK. We have had heard a lot about um, this interplay between sort of people-driven movements or people-led movements um, and social models of care, and then the kind of barriers, if you like, to getting into the system. I know that you're, you go around the world now as this global ambassador, not actually as a CEO, but as someone who tells the story of how to do these more organic models of care. Do you have any insights into how you, how you bring this kind of organic model of care into institutions and systems? Any lessons that you've learned along the way? Uh, yes, <laughs> the... Uh... 
we've been in a lot of countries now. Um, I was amazed how in Asia, for example, in uh, Japan, uh, six years ago, they asked me to present it for um, a lot of um, uh, CEOs, uh, also for the Ministry of Health. Um, and some of the um, friends now in Japan, they picked it up and they uh, started to spread the ideas all over Japan. Um, and what really helped was that one of these, um, these people who did it, Mrs. Satoko Hota, Hota-san, uh, she stayed for a year in, in uh, Holland and she, she studied uh, what we did very closely. So she visited uh, the teams, she did research, and she was working for the Ministry of Health in Japan. And, and at the same time, the Ministry of Health uh, decided, uh, because of the demographics and the financial uh, situation in, in Japan, that in 2025, most of the activities which are now happening in hospitals should be happening in the community. So the whole model, the philosophy fit in their policy. And, and what I did j just um, from 2010 till now was talking with uh, a lot of different people, um, a lot of nurses and doctors. Uh, they understood completely what it, this was about. So I think it's a very logic way to think about how to help uh, patients. Um, and, and they themselves started to influence the system. We took um, 34 experiments all over Japan, and every time we evaluated the experiments together, so they were sharing their, um, uh, their experiences with, with each other. And this is the way it grew. Um, and now, in 2015, some organizations are starting to, to work with, with the model, and we developed something like a franchise uh, model based on. And now it's all over Japan, it's uh, well known, and I think it's a good example in that it takes so many years, so you have to be patient, and at the same time you have to have a contact with all the different <laughs> levels which are dealing with these issues. Mm. Can't just be the lone wolf, as you say, Helen. I mean, I think building on that question, um, I think, uh, Alan, you had talked about nurturing, and Helen, you talked about building leaders. Um, there's still this tension playing to Halima's point that this should be people-driven about actually how do you play a role as the hierarchy or as the institution in bringing these movements or social models of care in? So how do you enable that, that in innovation to, to penetrate the system? So one of the reasons, everyone, why, why I think that um, uh, at least principles and practices are right for now is because we're in a world where the power of hierarchy is diminishing. And if you think about the kind of hierarchical structures that you typically see in health and care organisations, you know, they were designed for a different era. They were designed for a time where, you know, the jobs that, that people did were very stable and um, replicable. So it made sense to organise the work into kind of neat little um, silos or divisions. But like, the world isn't like that anymore, you know? In a sense, it's, you know, things are so fast moving. I mean, when you just, I mean, you know, those of us that work in the, um, the health and care system, just how fast things are moving. In a sense, um, hierarchical structures and systems can't enable change to happen at the, at the speed um, and the, um, the scale it needs to. So I think we're actually moving into an era now where every leader, whether you know, um, assist, you know, um, a leader in an organisational hierarchy or, um, or, a, or a network leader, needs these kind of skills and perspectives. Um, because you know, we're moving away from a world where you, know, you have to do this because it's the performance objective, it's the quality target. We're moving to a world which is how do we um, support people to do the things that they, they really want to do, that really, that really matter, that connect with what's in our hearts, that kind of ignite the collective brilliance of the people who use the system and the people in the system. So, the, you know, um, just like move over because the world's going this way. Alan, do you have um, any, any thoughts on that in terms of... I think you said something interesting to me earlier about, you know, um, social movements are full of uncertainty, full of energy. They're, you know, what you said, raging and roaring. Um, but at the same time, you have to transform health and social care in this, uh, this region within five years. So how do you navigate that kind of <laughs> uncertainty and the deadline, you know, if you like? I think one of the things I'm more confident about is that uh, doing it without tapping into people's energy and uh, 
grasping hold of concept like social movements, we will fail if unless we, we do it. That we've been trying the transformation of health and social care for as many years as all of us can remember and have achieved, you know, it, it does progress, but trying to do it within five years is quite a challenge. Over the next 10 years will be quite a challenge, but key to it is actually how we actually engage people in that process. And we do have um, familiar methods for doing that, but it feels that in my role and others in similar positions, we, we, we ought to be looking at other ways of engaging. And we will be grappling, grappling with social movements as a concept. We will get some of it wrong. But I think it's obligatory on people in my position to actually try different ways of engaging. Learn from when it goes wrong. Learn from what we need to change about the way I relate to communities in my position and in, as part of that hierarchy, and then try to change that, that system. So it, it just feels that it's, it's, it's obligatory on people in this position to actually try out different ways, to try to unpick the hierarchy and actually to learn from the process of doing it. We won't get it right, but you've got to keep trying at it and, and then you know, find other ways of, of going around it. So it just means that we can actually get people engaged. Mm. Now, you said something earlier about creating the conditions for people to take more control of their lives. And, and I think it's important to note that social models of care or social movements don't apply in every region of healthcare or the healthcare system. You know, you, when we were doing our Connected Communities um, research at the RSA, we you know, it was very clear people don't want to co-produce heart surgery um, and that we leave that to um, a specific part of the hierarchy to deliver. Um, however, the social movement is about those social determinants of health that you were talking about before. Can I maybe just give you a practical example of this, Rowan, because I think it's a, really, um, it's a really important point. And I think, you know, what we can't do is to say, oh, well, you know, social movements is the, is the kind of the method and the approach and we're going to apply it to everything. Because I think, in my experience... Um, you know, where we've used these approaches, sometimes they've worked really well and sometimes they've worked less well. And an example where, where it's worked well, again, is the, is the um, situation that um, I said about people living with dementia and antipsychotic drugs. And, and part of the reason it worked well there was because it was a cause, you know? It was a situation that was so bad, you know, um, tens of thousands of people living with dementia being given um, inappropriate drugs, you know, across the country that was you know, um, um, subduing them inappropriately. Like, nobody could argue that that was a good thing. So as the basis for, for using social movement approaches, it was, it was really great. So we then, um, the team I worked in, we then tried to work with social movement approaches around a project that was about shared decision-making and people with end-stage um, kidney disease. And it was a disaster, and, and the reason, it just, it, it just never, it never ignited, it never caught. And part of the reason for that was because um, um, even though they were like, um, you look at the statistics, the data, it said bad things were happening. You know, um, patients with end-stage um, kidney disease weren't being given proper choices by clinicians. A lot of the clinicians didn't think there was a problem, okay? They didn't think it was a problem that the patients weren't being given a choice, so actually, our ability to engage those clinicians and um, to, to mobilise around something that they didn't think was an issue was impossible. So in that context, it, it, you know, it's never going to work. But in a, in a scenario, and I think, again, you know, like I would be very hopeful, um, Alan, in a scenario where you know, every, everybody, we can, we can create a situation where we can mobilise um, lots of different people around a common cause, creates, I think, the best circumstances for using these kind of approaches. So um, it was the lady over there was first, yeah. Hi, yeah, I'm Christine, um, fellow of the RSA. Mm -hmm. And there's one question that I think might be at the lone wolf stage, and I wonder if you can get to the movement stage, and it's something that's really down to each person, which is diet. And I sort of think that maybe our understanding of diet has, has been um, basically gone wrong, that sort of uh, the change, the movement would be, that we should embrace that, that highly processed carbohydrates are the problem in our diet. Um, so it's, it's bread, it's polished rice, as well as sugar. That's really the problem with our diet. And so an example being orthodontics, being malnutrition, which has suggested it's far more endemic than we think. So I'm curious as to where you are on this. Uh, is this something you're aware of? Um, is this something you think needs more research? Are you sort of aware of this? Um, thank you for the talks. Um, just one question. Sometimes this idea of social movements in health feels a bit abstract. What would we... What, just got some ideas. What would we actually see people doing if they were... But if there was people power, what would people be doing? That's a good one for you, Halima. So we could repeat we'll it. We'll take one more question. The gentleman at the back, put your hand up again. Uh, Aidan Ward. I'm uh, an independent consultant. Um, 
I'm listening, my antennae flapping as to what is allowed to be said. And there is a national divide on the panel, and I think it's very interesting. So we're allowed to be disruptive, but what I heard you say, Jos, was that in Holland things went backwards rapidly over a number of years to the point where you had to step out. That is, the decision-making system was heading in the wrong direction. I wonder what it's possible to say in the UK context and whether there's a step too far. We seem to have to be positive still, and it worries me. It's one that I, I suppose when you, when you were speaking, asking the question, I was thinking more in terms of uh, diet as being broken up into various different aspects of what it is about diet and food production that would seem to me to be open to social movements. Um, and then I was also thinking, well, I might talk about pressure groups or, or whatever, and, and it's, it's, I find it one that's quite hard to deal with. The government has only recently produced its um, childhood obesity strategy, and we were all universally disappointed. And I did wonder at that time, had there been a social movement which was actually making a greater clamour uh, for more measures on, uh, on, on obesity and childhood obesity particularly, maybe they would have feel, felt better to, able to respond to it. And there are some of those things around, but um, I suppose that the one that came to mind for, for me, and, and I'm not sure this answers your question, but in Greater Manchester, uh, in Oldham, we have a programme called Get Oldham Growing. There's a programme in Stockport called Feeding Stockport. It is part of our Health as a Social Movement programme to look at how people come together to produce community food, fruit and veg. Most boroughs will, will have them to some greater degree. Um, mainly it's about, in my mind, uh, people come together and having social interaction through the production of food. But we are looking to take that on into looking at business opportunities and so on. Quite whether that becomes a social movement or not, I'm not sure. It does feel to me that there is something there about the production of food rather than diet necessarily, which has more... Um, uh, uh, more to offer, or, or a social movement has more to offer. So I, I'm not sure I dealt with your question properly, but that's what was coming to mind for me. It was more about looking at food production. Yeah. So, uh, maybe just an, an, an example um, uh, around this. So, um, so some of the work I was involved in recently was um, in, um, in Fulham and um, Hammersmith, um, where you have a scenario where um, 40% of 10 and 11-year-olds are either obese or, or overweight. And um, and some of the ways that they've been working around this issue in a really kind of people-powered way, I think, are very are really helpful. And, um, and what it's about is understanding, you know, how do we um, how do we work in ways that are about diversity and, and bringing different people together. So what they what they've been doing there is looking at a whole series of different challenges around. Um, uh, health and fitness with young people and bringing really mixed groups of people together. So, um, you know, young people, families, fast, local fast food owners, public health um, uh, professionals, coders, designers, and bringing these really eclectic groups of people together to, um, you know, to, to um, uh, create um, uh, responses to some of these big challenges. And, do, do you know, it's, it's that diversity. It's when you bring the, 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 those groups of people together... And I mean, the evidence on this is really clear, that diverse groups of people will consistently make better decisions than small groups of experts. So actually, our ability to kind of work in this social movement way, to embrace, um, embrace diversity, maybe answers that last question a little bit, actually. Um, uh, you know, we've got to create the space... Um, we've got to create the space to do that. And as leaders, in a sense, what we've got to be able to do is to kind of set the boundaries and then we've got to get out of the way and let people get on with it. And we've got to trust that people will come up with the right kind of answers. And I think where leaders are, are willing and brave um, and, and social enough to do that, actually, are, in my experience, our um, expectations get consistently um, exceeded. Mm -hmm. But we've got to create the space to do it. Halima, on um, the abstract nature of social movements, what does yeah. people power so no, look it's, like? It's a fantastic question. So um, the answer is it looks really, really different, and there are loads and loads of brilliant examples, and there's about there's more than 20 in our report, loads that, that um, Helen and others, others know about. So I'll, I'll give you a, a few. So um, there are points at which a health condition is so stigmatised that the people that have had the diagnosis don't even feel able to talk about it, even in the presence of a doctor. So breast cancer, when it was first kind of... Um, 
uh, sort of emerging as an issue. Um, massive, massive stigma. So there's been an entire breast cancer movement that's got to the point now where people wear pink ribbons in public in a, in a way that is inconceivable um, a few decades earlier. So that's a brilliant example of the just how far a social movement can can go. And another one um, is around, actually AIDS is another great example, where people, again, with the diagnosis themselves, just weren't prepared to accept the lack of research into that health condition. They just, and you use the, this language, actually not being prepared to accept, and I think it's absolutely core to this. So again, you know, and in this huge switch in terms of the amount of attention put into something that really is of enormous, enormous consequence, Different kinds of examples. So I mentioned the hospice movement, again, just came out of powerful yet simple insights that it's simply not good enough that people die where they don't want to die and in, in circumstances that they don't want. And again, that, that insight combined with a whole set of kind of mobilisation and change over periods of time gets us to a place where we are now talking about a good death. Again, just things that were just not talked about, not, not considered. So many, many different... I mentioned the disability movement again, a brilliant, brilliant example of work over many, many years. So I, I hope that helps to bring it to life, which isn't to say that some of the, the smaller examples of change that we're talking about aren't also relevant. And I think again and again we hear this idea of the social model of health and actually to what extent is all of the work going on around the social model of health actually um, building up uh, cumulatively to some potentially very, very big transformational changes in terms of a shift, if you like, from a biomedical model of health to a social model. And I just, so that sort of, I hope given some, brought it to life a little bit more. But just a quick couple of um, thoughts on that, on the third question around um, uh, what are we allowed to say, which is brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. So I think um, I would take us back to that raging and roaring bit. This is not about being polite, I don't think. Um, it is not about asking permission before you decide whether or not something you want to say is... is is acceptable. Um, but it is, and this came out brilliantly because we had a, there was sort of a pre-session to this public session tonight, and Mark Swift, who's in the audience, said something that I think was brilliant as well. It's, it's also judgment about how much to rock the boat and when to rock the boat. So there is a judgment there as to, in order to achieve your aims, when is it the right time to be somewhat polite and somewhat playing the existing game, and when is it required that actually you just shake things up and take things by the collar, if you like. And I think that's something that, that came out very, very powerfully earlier on. Mm. So, Jos, I'll, I'll um, take that question to you then. I think, um, talking about rocking the boat, I think you, you do that for a living. Um, and, um, and I'm interested in how, how comfortable you felt with using terms. I think you said abnormal regulation and useless indicators when you were talking. How, how comfortable do you feel with that kind of provocative language? How easy has it been to disrupt the system? I think men, um, you have, a, 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 I think, a clear message, which is understandable for a lot of people then um, I think it's very strong that you use just the words as they are. So, so if people feel it this way. So if I talk with uh, nurses uh, in London um, and I see how their daily practice is, uh, and we have had a lot of delegations from, uh, from England, and they, they see that they know uh, from the past that it can be done very differently, but uh, find it very difficult to find ways to... To rock, <laughs> to rock the boat, but I think it's time, and it's also already happening. So there are uh, several organisations are, are pioneering. We are working together with Public World uh, in Scotland and, and England. There are uh, in, in total, I think, more than ten organisations who are pioneering. So it's just it's just a matter of time. But I think what I see is, um, and that's different than in some other countries, that um, the the um, the, the British people are very proud of the principles of the NHS. But what I see is that uh, the daily practice drives away from the principles. So, um, but in, in Holland, uh, there is at the moment a discussion that we should um, uh, accept the, the principles of the NHS. Not the practice, but the principles. <laughs> so the more the, the practice is driving away from uh, the principles, the more need... I think, is for rocking the boat. And I think this time is, is right. And I've talked with a lot of people in, in all levels of the NHS, and they all recognise it. So that's not 
the problem anymore. But then this British politeness, mm. I think, is, is sometimes a problem. And it's pub- <laughs> <laughs> public debates like this are a part of making it happen and making it reality. Helen, if you'd like to finish. Yeah, so I just thought I might finish with a story, if that's OK. <laughs> and, um, and this story is about Sarah Duggan, who is um, chief exec in Worcestershire, who, who leads the um, local um, transformation and planning. And, and so... I went down and did some training with some people in her organisation and afterwards um, a whole group of them came to her and said, um, we want to be rebels, you know, we want to be the people that rock the boat and stay in it, so we want to have a rebel group. So, um, so um, the, the organisation, um, the people that, that you know, lead change and improvement in the organisation have been supporting this group to be the rebel group. And, what the, and the rebel group have been given some of the, like, the biggest challenges in, in the organisation, the system, to sort out. And, and they sort them out as a rebel group. So they're like, they're in the hierarchical system, but they're like on the edge, you know, um, um, being the rebels. And, and they're being given permission by that leader to work in, in radically different, uh, refreshing ways. And the relationship that's been built um, between, you know, that leadership team and that rebel group, very, very trusting, um, you know, very, very capable. And what's great now is that they found another rebel group um, in, um, in Vancouver Coastal um, Healthcare System in Canada. So now the Worcester Rebel Group and the Canadian Rebel Group are like, are like rebel partners, and it's kind of spreading. And, and it, you know, what to me, it's a really great example that it isn't like this is the hierarchical system and this is the, 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 the movement or the, the network or the community. Actually, I think that the, the best leaders in our system are, are actually understanding the power of both, and we need to work with both. Um, so I'm feeling we should have some kind of rousing chorus of rebel yell by yeah. the way, daughter. But sadly, we've run out of time, so we need to wrap up the session. You can find more information on social informa- um, movements and health in this report and on our website. As I say, we're one of three partners in this, and we're looking forward to working with NHS England to, um, as this work progresses. Please join me in thanking this evening's terrific speakers, Halima Khan, Helen Bevan, Joste Block and Alan Higgins. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, the rsa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.